You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We live in a day in which hindrances and opposition to the gospel seem to be more and more frequent. And it would be easy to get down about that. Kind of play the role of the pessimist. Oh, the world's just getting worse. Can you believe what's happening? Did you hear what they said? Can you you imagine such a situation? And undoubtedly, you're already beginning to think of, well, that happened to so-and-so last week, and I had this experience, and there was this thing, and, and, and it would be easy for us to live the life of the pessimist when we think about the advance of the gospel in our culture. There was a day when it was a given that Christians had influence in the public square. That day is over. Let's just go into hiding or something. Like you hear things like that out there. It's helpful when we face that sort of reality to remember that we are not the first Christians to face opposition. This, the 21st century is not the first time in the history of the world that there have been a few people who didn't like what Jesus had to say. These days are not the first days where there have been people who hated the truth and acted against it. Believers in the first century faced opposition as well. And in reality, throughout history, century after century, the gospel has faced what appear to be like hindrances or roadblocks, and what appear to be like opposition. It's helpful then to read Acts, isn't it? Because all through Acts, there are people both Jew and Gentile, who are resistant to the gospel, who kind of push back against Paul and and the other apostles and the missionaries who were sent out. They they push back and they're resistant and they want to turn people away from it. And We hear about jealousy and, and other persuasive attempts. As we read through that, it's helpful for us to remember and and hopefully we'll begin to discover what the early church discovered and, and perhaps we'll even be able to embrace what they discovered, that God uses opposition to the kingdom as opportunities for the gospel. Bottom line, God takes opposition to the kingdom and says, hey, You feel like you're being opposed. It looks like you're being opposed. You may be getting criticized. There may be even something worse than criticism happening. There are folks who are trying to persuade people that the gospel is untrue and to lead people away from light into darkness, as we see in Acts 13. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit says, that's where I want you to go. Find the darkness and run there. (laughs) not to participate, but to bring the light. That's exactly what we find in Acts 13. These guys know they will face opposition. They are prepared to face opposition. And they go 
with the confidence of the gospel of King Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit because they have discovered the reality that God uses opposition to the kingdom as opportunity for the gospel. And they find that truth in two instances in Acts 13, two different places. One is an island called Cyprus. The other is a city called Pisidian Antioch. I brought with me, if this thing works, a little atypical today, a map, just to help. It's not working. So, Noble, pull up the map. <laughs> That's why I don't get too involved in the tech, and we keep it low-key around here as best we can. But it'll give you a sense, and we'll, we'll bring the bottom line back in a few minutes. But I want you to kind of see the progress of the gospel initially. Paul, as you know, or may, you may or may not know, uh, had several missionary journeys, and we're going to read about them over the next few months as we work through the rest of Acts. And there in the top right corner of the map, you see a little city called Antioch, or a significant city, I should say. Uh, below that is Damascus, Jerusalem. So you kind of get an idea. This is Israel. This is where we are. You read all these names, and this is like this passage is a nightmare for people who don't like you. Every time I ask you all, like any of you, to read something in the service, you're like, just be sure there's no names. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you said that to me. It would be everyone I've ever asked. This is a nightmare passage because there are names and there are places and we don't know how to pronounce them. So just, you're going to have to work through it. Thought a little visual aid might be helpful today. So you've got kind of, you've got the Holy Land. You've got Israel there on the right side of the map. Jerusalem is in the southern part of the map. Antioch in Syria is in the northern part of the map. That's the place we spent some time talking about in recent weeks where you get the first multi-ethnic church. This was the place where the gospel shows up and people are believing in Jesus and it's not just Jews and the Holy Spirit's fallen and it's not just like some random Gentiles in one person's house over here and the Jews over in Jerusalem. All of a sudden you've got the first multi-ethnic church right there in Antioch and then that becomes the place, it becomes like home mission base for the, for the mission to the rest of the Mediterranean. So that ocean there is, or the sea is the Mediterranean Sea that you, that you find. So the apostles and the church and the missionary, Paul, Barnabas, and the others, gather in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit instructs them to set apart Paul and Barnabas, or Saul we, we read initially, and Barnabas, for the work to which I've called them. Now, I want you to notice, if you, before we get into the conflict stuff, notice how they are preparing for what's to come. What is the church doing at the beginning of chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, knowing that when they get to the island of Cyprus, and when they get back to the mainland, in Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, that there are going to be serious oppositional forces that are coming up against their mission. So what are they doing? They gather, they pray, they fast, and they devote themselves to listening to the Holy Spirit. They gather, they pray, they fast, and they devote themselves to listening to the Holy Spirit. In the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, right? So there's instruction. There are people who are speaking the Word of God to the people for their building up to give them life. You get all these names. Some of them are hard to pronounce. And then you get to verse 2. While they were worshiping. <laughs> Notice that. While they were worshiping. You know, not while they were watching the game, <laughs> while they were worshiping, not while they were fishing, <laughs> while they were worshiping, not, like, I, I, I'm tempted to have you call out your favorite hobbies, but I, I won't, we'd get in trouble if I did that, 
take your hobby, get it in your head. We're not, like, hobbies are great. I got hobbies. I'm going to spend some time this week playing my, my guitar and reading some books, and I'm gonna, it's going to be some R&R, and it's going to be good. But when does the Holy Spirit start speaking? Not while they were, fill in the blank, while they were worshiping. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. These are people who want to hear from God. They're not waiting for God to like show up on accident. They're not like, hey, let's go do our regular crazy busy lives and I've got a lot going on today and maybe the Lord will speak to me while I'm doing whatever. No, they say we want to hear from the Lord, so let's go set ourselves apart and worship and make some space and some time together. Notice they're not by themselves. This isn't like isolated private devotional time. It doesn't even say that. It doesn't even say when they were having their daily devotional, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Not criticizing daily devotionals. Have those all the time, right? Every day. Just saying, when the Spirit initiates the new thing that's about to transform the rest of the world that ultimately wound up in Hope Hall, Alabama a while back. Like, just remember that. What we're doing here is the most recent chapter of the thing that started in Acts 13. Just let that sink in. Over 2,000 years, what we are doing here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is the most recent chapter of the thing that started way back in the first century, late 40s, like not late 1940s, late 40s. That's it, 40s. On the other side of the world, in Syria. You got your map. Ah, the map is gone. Bring it back. I'm not done with the map. I'll tell you when I'm done with the map. There it is. All right. That's where it started. Here's where we are. It's the same story. In a little while, we're going to find out the story goes way back beyond this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now I was reading this week, reading this, kind of thinking through this like Tuesday morning, reading through the text, thinking through how's this going to work out and what are the things we need to be paying attention to. And it struck me, the Holy Spirit said, because the Bible doesn't say the Holy Spirit said often, does it? We get Jesus said all the time. Like you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus said this, Jesus said that. Sometimes we wish he hadn't, but he did. That was supposed to be kind of funny. It must have been convicting. <laughs> That's the difference, right? So the Spirit now is speaking, right? The Spirit shows up, and we hear a lot about the Spirit, but this time... The Spirit speaks, and we get quotation marks. And what does the Spirit say? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. They do some more worshiping, fasting, and praying. They lay their hands on Barnabas and Saul, and they send them off. And then in verse 4 we hear, So, therefore, now, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So get this, friends. The world is about to change but it only changes when the Holy Spirit is speaking and sending. This isn't an accident. This isn't like, oh, the conditions were really just right. The Holy Spirit is speaking 
and sending. And take a minute to imagine what it would have been like or what the consequences might have been if Barnabas and Saul had been, hey, you know, I got something else going on that day. I missed the meeting. (laughs) So much for the missions conference or whatever it might have been because, you know, I had a thing. Think about the consequences of that. But they're there and they're attentive and they've devoted the fullness of their lives to the work of God in Christ through the Spirit. And so they're sent out. They set sail from Antioch. They go from Antioch to Seleucia, which is the port city. You got that on your map there? They jump on a boat, and they roll over to that island called Cyprus. And you can see they land in a place called Salamis. Acts tells us they worked the island. Like, these guys are serious players, aren't they? They weren't content with the one city. Like, they worked the island, the whole thing. And as they're going along, they go through the whole island, verse 6. They run into, in Paphos, that city on the western side of the island there, they run into a magician, a false prophet, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul named Sergius Paulus, who we're told is an intelligent man. He hears Paul and Barnabas are in town, Saul and Barnabas are in town, so he brings them in, wants to hear what they have to say. But Elymas, the magician, so Bar-Jesus equals Elymas, means magician, just we'll call him Elymas. He gets these guys are a problem for his project. He's a magician. He's got the chief political figure as his, uh, you know, he's his advisor to the proconsul. And now the proconsul here, he wants to hear from these other guys who are new in town, talking about Jesus, talking about the gospel and the kingdom. And so we're told in verse 8, the magician, Elymas, opposed and tried to turn, opposed Paul and Barnabas and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So the gospel lands on this island, and within six verses, we get the word opposition or opposes. Within six verses of setting sail, you get opposition. So the next time you're feeling opposed, or you're watching the news and somebody gets opposed, or or You know, somebody says, well, it's all evangelical Christians' fault that the Supreme Court did whatever they did. Like, the next time the opposition comes, just remember, 2,000 years ago, Saul and Barnabas jump on a boat, they ride from Seleucia over to Cyprus, and within how many verses? Six verses, we get opposition. This is nothing new. And it's not really, like, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the project. It's an opportunity for God to do his thing. Anytime the church faces opposition, it is always an opportunity for God to do his thing. Which is exactly what happens on Cyprus, isn't it? So here they are. And uh, Paul, I love Paul. Well, it's Saul, and then we get a.k.a. Paul. Saul, a.k.a. Paul. And this is just, this is a helpful thing, right? Because a lot of times... We hear it was Saul, and then he got converted, and he got converted, so God changed his name, and he became Paul. You ever heard that story? Is that what happened in Acts? He got converted a few chapters ago. It's 13, chapter 13. We're still calling him Saul. What's the thing where we get the new name? Like, what event happens where we get the new name? Like, yeah, he goes out of the Holy Land into Gentile territory. So probably 
Saul was the name he used when he was hanging out around Hebrew people, and Paul was the name he used when he was hanging around non-Hebrew people. At least that's the way it looks here. He meets some Gentiles. It's Saul, also known as Paul. You get a different name. And it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world to have versions of your name that you use in the appropriate circle. Saul, the name of Israel's first king, like that would go over well in Hebrew circles, wouldn't it? Gentile circles, we don't know the meaning of that or the significance, and we don't care. So Paul becomes his name in those places. Paul's got some attitude, doesn't he? The opposition comes along, and the first thing he does is call this guy a son of the devil. You son of a devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. I think this guy gets worked up a little bit, kind of gets into it, kind of takes this thing with some seriousness. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then notice what happens. And I wonder if you noticed this when we were reading it through the first time. He says to him, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while. Now, think about who said that. A few chapters ago, Paul was the one who was hearing, <laughs> the hand of the Lord is <laughs> after you, and you're going to be blind for a while. We don't know how the story ends for Elymas, but Paul came through his blindness into the light, didn't he? And Elymas, who's cloaked with darkness, winds up unable to see, looking for people to lead him around. And so again, the gospel faces what? Opposition. And what happens? The kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, goes forward unabated. The consequence is, the proconsul, Sergius, sees this work of God, and is persuaded. And what are we told? We are told that he believes. We are told that he believes. And we see this instance, which has come through Acts. Opposition leads to advance. Hindrances to the gospel become opportunities for the gospel. But it's not just in Jerusalem, and it's not just in Judea. Now we begin to see that that reality characterizes the whole ministry and mission of the church to the ends of the earth when the gospel faces opposition god takes it as an opportunity to advance his kingdom so they move on they have evangelized the entire island the proconsul has believed so they jump on a boat from paphos and they head north to the mainland they wind up in a city called Antioch in Pisidia, not to be confused with Antioch in, remember where the other one is? You got the map right in front of you, Syria. So you got Syrian Antioch where they start, Pisidian Antioch where they've landed or traveled to, and they get invited to the synagogue. I wonder if the synagogue leader regrets doing an open mic night with Paul. Uh, because Paul, as you've noticed, gets on with it a ways, right? You're probably thinking, man, is the guy going to read the whole chapter? Like, that's not me, that's Paul. He's a long-winded preacher too. <laughs> Thanks, Willie. 
You're the only one laughing, but thanks. That's good. So they give the mic to Paul. Hey, brothers, if you, this is why we don't typically do, like, just, hey, random person that walked in the door, you want to say something? Because you never know how long it's going to last. It's long enough as it is, isn't it? So, so they give the mic to Paul, right? He starts telling the story, and he decides to start with, you know, uh, captivity in Egypt, which is way back, and he's got to tell this whole story. And he tells this whole story about God's kindness and God's providential care and how God called for himself a people, Israel, and they start out in captivity. And they're, not, they're not even a nation. They are not legit. It's like a bunch of random related people, slaves in a country not their own, in a land that doesn't belong to them. But God sends Moses and, and, and rescues them and brings them out, and they rebel against him, and they create some opposition to the kingdom way back in the Old Testament, don't they, with their complaining and their fussing. But that is another opportunity for God to show his faithfulness and to care for them, even if it takes 40 years in the wilderness, and to bring them into the promised land. And he brings them into the promised land. And there they grow up, and they rebel against him some more. And so he sends them the judges. And the judges care for them and rescue them from all sorts of people who are after them because they're disobeying God. And then they rebel against God some more because God wasn't planning to give them a king, but they said, hey, we want to be like everybody else. Always be careful when the church wants to be like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. Everybody else has a king. Why don't you give us a king? So God says, not going to go well for you, but I'll give you Saul. And then they get David, and it goes on. We kind of land on David for a little while, don't we? Because David is the one who gets the promise. One day, one of your descendants is going to reign on your throne forever. And Paul's point in this sermon is that that has been fulfilled. One of David's sons, his name is Jesus, was handed over to the power players, and they killed him. They crucified him. But God didn't leave him. David's still dead in the ground, but Jesus has been raised. And not only raised, God has said to him, you are my son, my beloved. You will not experience corruption in the book of Acts, this is like the reader is not supposed to forget this. Acts chapter 1, what happens? Jesus, son of David, ascends to the throne of heaven. And we remember that in Acts, heaven isn't just a destination like where the martyrs go when they die to be with Jesus. That, it's that, and that's fine. It's not really the point, at least not the whole point. Heaven isn't just a destination, it's mission control, isn't it? Heaven is the place where Jesus, Son of God and Son of David, sits enthroned over all things. Heaven is the place where Jesus calls the shots for the mission of the church. Heaven is the place from which Jesus sends His Holy Spirit to speak to His church and to send His church to the ends of the earth. Heaven is a place where Jesus, it's an image of Jesus, deeply engaged and thoroughly overseeing and in control of the mission of the church, even when they face opposition, especially when they face opposition. Paul lingers on David because the exaltation of Jesus to the throne of heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty is a fulfillment of all the promises of God 
to the people of Israel, especially David, to whom he said, one of your descendants will reign on your throne forever. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So when you face opposition and when you get discouraged and when you are tempted to play the pessimist, just go read Paul's lengthy sermon. I have said to you, you are my son, my beloved. Give, I will give to you the nations as your inheritance. Go read Psalm 2, which he quotes. Ask me, just ask me, Jesus. And the Father says, just ask me, and I'll give you everything you see and everything you don't, and it'll be yours, and it belongs to you. That, by the way, is why there are no closed countries. Like, the apostles aren't going, well, you know, nobody's been to Cyprus before with the gospel. Nobody's saying, you know, like, there's some authorities who may not like what we do. I'm not sure we can get in. Maybe we needed the right kind of visa. Like, they're not worried about that. Why? Because Jesus reigns over the, all things. Because the heavens and the earth have been given to him. He's king over all. His dominion is a worldwide dominion. So the next time somebody gets on Twitter and starts fussing about the gospel, remember, Jesus reigns over all things. And his kingdom will last forever. He's not worried about opposition in fact, you may remember that these psalms Paul is quoting actually talk a little bit about what Jesus does when people get kind of fussy and opposed to him. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations plot against the Holy One of the Lord? You ever seen the nations plot against the Holy One of the Lord? Yeah. You remember what it says Jesus does in the next, the next sentence? Anybody remember? Well, you're going to like this. The one who sits in heaven scoffs. Like he's making fun of them. It's like little power players running around on the running around in the world. People like Pilate, people like the Emperor of Rome, people who think they control companies and countries and everything else. The one who sits in heaven mocks them. We don't think of Jesus as mocking people often, but straight up, Psalm says he's scoffing. Because they are no threat. Because a random magician on Cyprus is not a threat to the kingdom of God. Because a mob of angry people in Pisidian Antioch is not a threat to the kingdom of God. Because no politician and no corporate exec and no posse on social media is a real threat to the kingdom of God. The one who sits in heaven laughs. I invite you to laugh more. When the gospel faces opposition, just go ahead. Get a good belly laugh right there. And you'll know that you'll have the same posture as Jesus. He's not worried about it. He's not stressing. He's like, oh, the magician in Cyprus, what do I do? That's not his posture. 
He is empowering his people to boldly proclaim the good news of his perfect, unfailing, freeing love. And that's precisely what they do. I'm reading through this this week. I was struck. Acts 13, verse 38. Paul's got this extra long sermon. He climaxes the sermon with the resurrection, and then he comes along with his invitation. And it's not really even an invitation as it is a challenge, isn't it? He whom God raised up experienced no corruption. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that through this man, who? Jesus. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He declares the story of hope. The story of Israel. The story of Jesus is a story of hope for the nations. And that's us. And listen to it. And maybe you're reading this and you're thinking, like, I've got things I can't get free from. I can't get free from fear of opposition to the gospel, so every time an opportunity to talk about Jesus comes up, I just keep my mouth shut, because who knows what will happen? I can't get free from that addiction. I can't get free from that anger. I can't get free from, like, when that person does it, I just, oh, I just, that's how I feel, and I can't get free from it. And then we get here, and 2,000 years ago, we are told that Jesus... Jesus, Jesus, the living, resurrected, reigning Messiah wants to come and take all of the darkness and all of the sin and all of the, just the, the junk and the, the horror, the things that we feel like enslave us, that we feel like we can't get free from. Laziness. All of the things. The Gospel says, let it be known to you therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And not just forgiveness, but also freedom. Freedom you can't get anywhere else. By Jesus. By Jesus. Everyone who believes is set free from all those things. All those sins which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And he sets a choice. Like, here's the option. Jesus or not Jesus. And he says, like, if you've read, remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience. He's like, you've read the prophets. It says, look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish, for in your days I'm doing a work, a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you. And Paul's saying, listen, guys, <laughs> Trust Jesus. Give up the indwelling sin, the me factor. I'll have it my way no matter what. No matter who gets hurt, 
And no matter what happens, I get my way. When we're honest, we feel like a slave to that, don't we? The gospel says, not only will Jesus not hold it against you, thanks be to God, he'll set you free. And my, like, I wonder, because you can't get a hundred or so people together without wondering this. Who needs to get set free? Who needs to hear Jesus say, you know that horrifying stuff that you are holding on to, I don't hold it against you. I'm not going to hold it against you. When I went to the cross and my blood flowed, I purchased your forgiveness. I'm not going to hold it against you. And not only am I not going to hold it against you, I can set you free. So that that pain, that darkness, that transgression, that thing, that monster doesn't have to be your master anymore. Forgiveness, freedom. Is that what you want? Interesting how the story plays out here. Maybe it'll help us as our stories play out a little bit. The initial response of the crowd at the synagogue is, let's hear this guy again. Let's hear him again. And then some of the leaders say, you know what, let's talk tomorrow. And they go sit down with Paul and Barnabas and they kind of start hashing it out. They come back the next Sabbath and not just the Jews show up, the whole city shows up. Because word has spread. And then, as the gospel begins to attract unexpected people to the perfect love of God in Christ, then the opposition arises. But we've already learned, haven't we? We've already learned that God uses opposition as an opportunity to advance his kingdom. And that's what happens here. It turns out the Jews are jealous that the Spirit wants to share the blessings of God with non-Jews. You ever been in a church setting? <laughs> or you got some blessings, but you don't want to share it with them. <laughs> yeah. A few of you giggled, which tells me you have a, like, we're connecting here, aren't we? We know what... Like, we know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to be in a place where it's like, you know, God loves us, and we like it that God loves us, and we like our little group of people that God loves together, and, you know, if somebody else comes in, we might have to share the love. I was in a church 17 years ago where somebody said to me, you know, I like our little group of people. I'm not sure I want new folks to come around. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and blaspheming. They contradicted what was spoken by Paul. 
Scripture sets before us a choice. Will we have Jesus or will we have ourselves? You can expect the gospel to provoke opposition, not only from out there, but from in here. That's the twist in the story, isn't it? Expect the gospel to provoke opposition, not only from the magician, but also from the self. Because the gospel is a story about someone who reigns as king over all things, including myself. And the gospel calls me to surrender to him. And that means, right, if, if my heart produces opposition to the gospel, the good news is there's an opportunity for God to advance into my heart, isn't there? So I wonder, not how many <laughs> of us need to lay down our arms. I wonder how many of us will. Because all of all of us, me, you, all of us, have something to lay before Jesus. It may be the first time. It may be the first time that you said, <laughs> I've been at church all my life and I've been going to these things and I've been doing these things and I'm just now coming to realize that, that I have not laid it down before. Like I've never offered myself to Jesus. Right? Because you can go to church and stay in charge. Right? Especially in Alabama. Like, like Bible Belt makes it easy. Maybe you weren't connected with the church early on. And the gospel thing is kind of new. And you're thinking, like, some of these folks, like, this is news to me. And I don't want to stand against it. Can I offer that to Jesus? It's not a matter of whether some of us have something to offer the Lord, something to lay before him, some self-oriented control to say, Jesus, no more will I insist on lordship. No longer will I oppose your lordship. Won't you take my opposition and make it an opportunity for the advance of your kingdom and the outworking of your gospel? Whether it's the first time, the one thousand. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.